what are the three things you value most in life? Ooh, uh, oh, we're getting really, uh, really philosophical immediately. Maybe I'll just think out loud. When you say the three things you value, the first place my mind goes is towards like huge philosophical concepts, I guess, like uh, truth, <laughs> you know, like, and I know it seems like a crazy thing to be like, I value truth, but it, that is, that is immediately where my mind goes is things like truth, uh, honesty, uh, and then because it's funny, I feel like I should throw something not that is much more mundane than that. It's like truth, honesty, and like like really good cheese or something. <laughs> everyone, um, everyone that I've interviewed has said food. Like I really love to cook. I love to eat. Uh, and I do, I do feel like there is something so unifying about food because it is, it is at its core a like fundamental just like human imperative living thing imperative like it's like you have to eat the way you choose to do that can be so wildly different and it's yeah food is food is incredible <laughs> why cheese out of all the foods uh, my mind immediately goes to like a nice soft brie people have asked before like for like you know food hot takes and stuff like that of like what's your weird food opinions and mine is that all food is good uh, i have like i have i am a completely like equal opportunity eater it's all good i'm happy to have it i love big like punch you in the face flavors though so like blue cheese it, the stinkier and runnier uh, i'm in heaven <laughs> tell me a memory which shaped you I, I grew up as a military brat, and and so I, uh, which my, my, my dad was in the military, so ev roughly like every three years or so, we would move to some new place. And that, like, as a general thing, has probably done more to shape my general outlook of the world than anything else. Because every three years, you basically just, like, all the friends you've made, all the social ties you've established, you have to like immediately cut them off and then start all over again in a new place. And then with that too, you're like also entering new cultures and you're, you're meeting like new people who have new ways of viewing the world. And my upbringing was a lot of coming to accept something as true and then immediately like cutting that out from under the knees and meeting new people and coming across new opinions. And sometimes that was like from like very broad sort of like big ideas in terms of how how people view themselves like i mean a lot of this was within the u.s um so like you know just like things like state identity and stuff like that but then also like i could be in one place and be like a popular kid that everyone liked and then go somewhere else and be like utterly ignored like bottom of the social ladder like nerd and being able to sort of have the perspectives of like, oh, here's what it is to be utterly ignored. Here's what it is to be like loved and approved. Here's what it is to be just all the different ways you can sort of like see yourself and the world around you I was constantly being reformed when I was uh, when I was a kid. Do you think that shaped your comedy at all? I think so in the way specifically that like it put me in a place where I sort of like I became like very, very interested in other people and like how they thought and and how they navigated the world one for the very selfish reason of just like i need to be liked like i'm a new person here i need to make i need to make friends immediately and i need to because i'm only going to have three years like i need to make them quick and and like fit in as fast as i can and sort of like social chameleon myself so that like involved a lot of like 
close observation of people and what people liked and how people reacted to things. And also like, I learned pretty quick, the fastest way to make friends was to make a joke, you know, like be able to tell a story uh, because people just like to laugh. Uh, and it was like very, a very easy way. It's like, oh, you can be quick with a joke. You can come in here and people be like, oh, hey, like this kid's all right. So as a pure, just like attraction to comedy for sure. And then even just in like being able to empathize with people and, and imagine how other people are thinking and how other people are behaving and why they're behaving that way is like you need that those kinds of observations to be able to do effective comedy I think it's interesting too because like for me when it was like I'll move here I'll move there like you know the first couple times you do it you have this like this this experience where it's like well I don't feel like I've changed who I am and yet people are treating me differently and like it gives you like a very interesting sense of uh, identity I think where it's like I at least very quickly came to adopt a, a very like sort of fluid sense of like, okay, like you can have this sense of yourself, but like need to recognize that like all people are in many ways, like by necessity, if not choice, like defined by the, their surroundings or, like the way other people treat them and the way you treat other people. And, and like you have this, this like sort of core hidden sense of yourself, but like you're always going to be adapting to, to things around you. And, and, and that's, like that's as much a part of you as whatever you think the internal you is. What what is that famous saying? It's like you are you are not who you think you are. You are who others how you think others think others you are. think you are. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, it it blows my mind every time I think too hard about it. Um, because like sometime eventually someone's gonna ask me who are you and I'll freak out. <laughs> yeah, what am I supposed to do? What's your favorite color? Oh, uh, if I'm being totally honest, I have very few favorite anythings. It, it, I think in part because of some of the stuff we've been talking about, where it's just sort of like, for so long it was like, well, let me try to like, let me appreciate as much of everything as I can, whether that's food or the people or the places I'm in. So for a lot of these kinds of, kinds of questions, I'll have like a stock answer, which would be like blue. <laughs> um, but mainly just because it's like, ah, uh, blue looks good on me and I know I can rely on it and it's generally available. So blue is good. But in point of fact, like the more honest answer is I don't care. Color is sort of like, yeah, cool. Like it's all, it's all good. The, you know what? More color is better. As much color as, as possible. Cool. Tell me in as much detail as you can about something you knew of, which once existed and now does not. Hmm. Interesting. My brain immediately goes towards the dinosaurs, but I don't actually know that much about dinosaurs. Although, I, and I did kind of get on, uh, I had a tweet about this not too long ago. There's this great book called The Rise and Fall of Dinosaurs. It is exactly what it sounds like. It reads almost like The Rise and Fall of Rome or something, like the, the, the founding of an empire and then how it collapses, but it's just about, but it's about dinosaurs and like how they sort of came to be the dominant species on the planet and, and then have basically vanished. But with the little but with basically there, there's a fun little sort of taxonomic specificity in there which the book covers which is that like well the way that we scientifically define dinosaurs is you know it's the common ancestor of what, iguanodon and something else that i'm blanking on but because of that birds fall into that taxonomic tree so it is you know people often say like oh yeah birds are descended from dinosaurs but the way we define dinosaurs it's more correct to say birds are dinosaurs which i think like makes the world so much more interesting just be like yeah like that's a that is a dinosaur it made it there's you can draw this like direct line straight from the dinosaurs we think of to 
the like woodpecker that's outside my house. Uh, I think that's super fucking cool. <laughs> what, if anything, is perfect? Ooh. Uh, I mean, the easy answer here is nothing. A lot of my answers I think you'll find are me like kind of skirting the, like giving nothing definitive uh, because I don't really think that anything is definitive. Um, there's always exceptions and there's always going to be not truly, not, like it's a, it's a cliche, but nothing is perfect uh, and nothing is, is black and white. And that's like a very trite thing to say, but but I do think that like, looking for imperfections in the perfect and looking for good in the bad is is very like, typical of who I am, I guess. That being said, a good slice of pepperoni pizza on a cold night, that's pretty perfect. <laughs> it's interesting because you say nothing is perfect and yet you value truth. Well, but, but I guess I would say that like it is the the valuation of truth that is valuable. It is, you know, and, and like, this is something that unfortunately uh, we've been forced to to deal with a lot in the U.S. under the current administration, which is just the sort you can of shit like, talk Trump. It's okay. <laughs> oh, I know. <laughs> uh, I I honestly I hate even saying his name. Okay, um, we, we won't uh, go there. <laughs> uh, it, it, it is it is a like level of hatred that I've never felt in my life, and and it, like and because it is like an attack on truth in every possible way, like for, like any way you want to define truth, it's like oh well, it's it's misinformation and propaganda that is constantly being put out there, denial of things that are true, and even things like defunding environmental research, where it's just like, oh, the, the attack on the quest for truth itself, the utter refusal to even look for truth because it is not something you want is just, it's so deeply, deeply unsettling. Who is your favorite character from fiction of any kind and why? Ooh, you know, it's such like a broad, think of like fiction of any kind. In order for me to have, to be able to like focus this down, so a book series that has a very has like a very special place in my heart is the uh, is Philip Pullman's His Dark Materials series, which uh, I so so deeply love. This is another one of those when people ask like, "What's your favorite book?" Like that's sort of my stock answer, even though it's like I don't know, I like a bunch of books, like I like it all. But that is a, a book series I remember when I first read that. I remember at some point it must have been like four a.m. and like my mom like knocked on my door. I was like, "Are you still awake? What are you doing?" Because like I was just so engrossed in the book. Every time I got to an end of a chapter, it's like, "Well, I'll just read one more." So like there may I may have more favorite characters in other things, but I'm so tied to that book that that I might just say that like Lyra is my favorite. Although now that I've been talking to and I'm thinking about our earlier conversation, there might also be something to be said for Calvin from Calvin and Hobbes as a character who has like defined things I like about comedy. My my favorite thing in comedy is when you can combine something that is incredibly smart and incredibly stupid at the same time, where you can do both highbrow and lowbrow. You can be like very keen in your observations, but also unafraid to do something utterly stupid. And I feel like Calvin and Hobbes was like a really great way because like his Calvin as a character is like a five-year-old with the vocabulary of like a postgraduate student, you know, and like he's clearly like very smart and perceptive about the world, but is ultimately like going on these like wild flights of fancy and, you know, getting beat up by bullies and disgusted by the gross food in front of him. And like, it's like kids concerns, but also like, huge concerns about like free will and philosophy and stuff so i took a total right turn there because i was thinking as i was talking as i tend to do but yeah maybe i'll say calvin what fascinates you mm. you know i i 
have worked on this show, What the Fuck 101, that is, it's it's a very broad focus of like science and history. But the thing that sort of unites them is this feeling of like, when you hear one of these stories or one of these facts, it makes you, it elicits that what the fuck reaction, the what are you talking about? I can't believe that's true. And like, for me, I, I guess what, what fascinates me is surprise, which again, is a vague sort of like uh, all encompassing answer. But the feeling of having the world you thought you knew upended is always interesting. Like I always want to hear about the ways that things I thought to be true might not be true uh, and vice versa. So, you know, it was a joy to, to work on that show. <laughs> when we would meet with the researchers, it was a lot of like, it's like, hey, next time we meet, bring in just five things that when you heard it, you were like, this was shocking to me. And the moment I heard it, I had to tell someone else. What other job would you like to do if you weren't doing comedy? <laughs> yeah, the uh, I was thinking about this the other day it, it, in pitching pitching an idea to someone else. But I was thinking about the like the first job I wanted when I was a kid. You know, like when you're a kid, it's like oh, when I grow up, this is what I want to be. And like one of the first jobs I wanted was to be a park ranger because uh, I do like I love being outside. Um, I love hiking. I love this sort of the idea of national parks um, as this sort of like preserved public space and of course like my notion of what a what a park ranger did as a kid is wildly different from what they actually do but like you know i imagined a sort of like john muir tile style like naturalists up like living where it's like yeah you're just you're in a cabin out in the woods and and the birds speak to you every morning you know <laughs> this kind of like almost idealized version of like a fake relationship between humans and nature that that could exist um, and of course like that is not what a, a park ranger does but i i still when i need to relax and when i need to to like kind of clear my head like i'll go on a hike out in the in the mountains and it is it remains sort of uh, such a thing of comfort that if I weren't doing comedy, I feel like I would try to do something in the environmental space uh, just because like that, that does calm me down. <laughs> when, when my wife and I choose our vacations, we tend to choose places that are, um, it's, our, our categories are like, it should be small enough that we can see a lot of the country uh, and feel like we got like a good taste of it um, in, all, in all its sort of differences. It needs to have a, a good, um, culinary uh seed like something we, some food we can get excited about and uh it needs to have like lots of good like outdoorsy hiking options and which is part of the reason why ireland was such a great vacation because it hit up to it checked off all of those three um, like ireland has good food That's look good. here's the thing I, like and it's so funny too because like because even while we were there 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 was uh I, I, we stopped in at a gas station somewhere and the the guy behind the the register recognized me and he's like what are you doing here and it's like <laughs> on vacation and he's like it's like why would you come here it's like it's are you kidding it's lovely here i think there are there are things that you can become very accustomed to or jaded by, uh, especially if you're you're not used to it. And the like things like off the top of my head, Irish butter is the best butter in the world. It is incredible. And if you haven't had other butter and you're just used to, to, to Irish butter, you maybe don't realize how incredibly good it is. Um, but it is phenomenally good and just like you know you, you've got seafood and you've like delicious lamb and dairy and it's, it's just like there is there, like I feel like there there might be like a, a sort of like stereotype about like sort of kind of like British Isles in general it's like what's going on here it's like no there's the, like the produce itself is so um 
is so good that like you almost don't even need to do much to it that it's like yeah i'll just eat this on its own it's it's wonderful again like i like i'm happy to eat I'm happy to eat everything. I'm like, I'll see, I'll see the beauty in everything. Um, but I, a lot of it was this sort of like, it's like, oh, this, this egg is a very good egg. And like, I know that <laughs> might sound crazy, but it's like, there's a lot of like, you know, large scale factory farming in the US and stuff like that. And it's the kind of thing where you, you wouldn't necessarily notice the difference unless you suddenly taste something. And it's like, oh, this is, this butter is butterier. This egg is eggier. Like it's, you're, you're taking like these things I know and you're just sort of like cranking them up. What is your most prized physical possession? Hmm. By the way, you're free to look around the room. Everyone does it. It's okay. Yeah. I, <laughs> I, I don't have a whole lot of my... I got a lot of books in here. And uh, so I'll, I'll give another... This is, again, classic me of just sort of like doing a little bit of like, oh, does this count? Does this count? Uh, so I'll give you like the honest, nuanced, boring answer. And then I'll give you like a, a flat, uh, uh, <laughs> like definitive right. answer. So the honest, boring, nuanced answer is that I do not like having a lot of things. And this is, again, a result, I think, of my military upbringing, uh, which is that like when you move every three years, uh, you grow to hate packing and unpacking and moving things around. And by about the fifth time you do that, you start to do a lot of like soul searching going like, do I really need this thing, this little miniature or this cup holder or this whatever? And, you know, probably by the time I was around like 10, 12 or so, it, it became very like standard for me to just be like, I'm getting rid of anything I don't Anything I don't want to have to put into a box later and take out of a box later, I'm getting rid of it and I don't want it. So I actually try to accumulate very few things. And I don't attach a lot of sentimentality to objects because they get lost and they come and go. And I don't have many things that that was like, oh, I've had this since I was a child. It was like, nope, it got thrown out in a move. Like, it's just gone. Um, So I don't... I don't have that attachment to objects that I, I think some people do. So that's the like honest, nuanced uh, answer, uh, which means that the boring straight straightaway answer is probably my computer uh, because the most valuable thing I have is the stuff that I've written and the stuff that I've worked on over the past however many years. And so much of that you know, only exists in a weird digital form because uh, you know nothing gets printed out. So it's like, it is the data of these scripts and the videos that were shot and these the things that I've created that actually don't exist in a physical form. They're just ones and zeros. And that is the most valuable. Like if those disappeared, that would devastate me. <laughs> also like, you know, just sort of doing a lot of work on the internet where like things do disappear, you know, like before I was writing videos for College Humor, I was working on the editorial team. Uh, So I was writing a lot of articles and comics and things like that. But the like the dot com part of College Humor doesn't really exist anymore. So a lot of that work is just gone. And that was like a couple years of my life spent like working on, on that stuff collectively. And I don't think any of it is necessarily like good enough to warrant keeping. But it's very strange to see like, uh, in a very real way, time your time sort of disappear where it's like yeah that was my full-time job was making this stuff and and now it's all just sort of been banished it's really interesting i think that experience of like the meaning you can get from objects and and i've had this conversation with friends before actually because i I do think different people react differently like there are some people who can go to a museum and look at uh, a thing and be like i can now imagine like the history that this object has had to eventually like wind up here in this plexiglass box in front of me and uh that i can i can feel something from that and there are others who that like does not 
it, it impress as much. And I do fall somewhere, somewhere because like from my, in my personal life, it is a lot of like, I get rid of it. I don't need this. I don't need that. Be gone with it. And so much of the stuff from like early part of my life doesn't exist anymore. And, and I don't feel like deprived from that. So it's like, oh, I don't feel personally like I need to have objects to ground me to my own life. But at the same time, looking at something that has like, once the history gets big enough where it's like, hey, yeah, this like, this fucking necklace was like passed down for thousands of years or something like that. Like, you know, when you can see, I'm mean, talking dinosaurs again, like, like in that same book I mentioned earlier, like talking about like finding fossils of like dinosaur footprints. And like, I feel like when I think of fossils, I think of bones and stuff like that. But then imagine it's like, oh, like, yeah, those, I guess there are places where like those footprints are still there and you can see them. And like the thought of that is sort of like, that's not a human creation, but it is a thing that's like, that is like an indelible part of the world that we're around. And then you think of all the time that has gone on while that footprint was still embedded. And uh, there's, it is humbling. <laughs> if you could name a hot sauce, what would you call it? And why? <laughs> mm. uh, it's funny. We, I remember um, we were, we had a writer's meeting one time and we were talking about, um, we were talking about the weird phenomenon of, of a hot sauce bottles uh and this was this was it, it tangential to like on like beach boardwalks in america there's like a lot of times there'll be like these souvenir stands that just sell the absolute worst things ever it's just like like misogynist t-shirts and like horrible tchotchkes and and all and like there's often like a hot sauce shop that is and it's always like puns about fire and ass and stuff like that. And, like, <laughs> a rude donkey just like like flipping you off. And it's it's such like a strange thing where where so much um uh, so much hot sauce is about like trying to impress like how strong and, and fiery and hot this thing is. Um but there's actually, mega death sauce, but liquid yeah, rage. Exactly, like liquid fire, uh hot magma. But like Almost always, like the more over the top the name is, the worse the sauce is. In my in my opinion, uh, it's like they're they're trying to comp overcompensate for something. Um, uh, so like the um, it, it, look, I'm a classy gentleman. If I were to name a hot sauce, I'd probably go the more subdued route uh, because like the classic hot the things that like you reach for again and again, uh, at least here, like are like Tabasco and your Sriracha and your, your uh, Tapatio and, and stuff like that. It's like, it's like, oh, this is like a very, like we are so confident in the quality of this hot sauce that we don't need to convince you it's good. Like we're just gonna call it, um, you know, like we're just gonna name it after the place or the thing. So if I were to do one, I guess it would, I would probably be, it, it would be like something that was deceptively classy. Here's what, it, here's what it would probably be. I really like the idea of terroir, you know, this idea of like that the food reflects the, the place that it's from. And so if I were to make a hot sauce, it would probably be one where I would want to lean into the, um, the, the produce of the area where it's like, okay, what are the chilies that are growing here in LA? Uh, maybe throw some tomatillos in there. Uh, uh, get that. So I probably like lean toward a name that was like a very, a very boring flat, like LA terroir or something like that. That would be like, oh, this sounds very classy. And it's like, yeah, it is classy. <laughs> so I, I like hot sauce and I like heat, although I'm finding more and more, I can't handle it as much. But uh, I think like, a lot of hot sauces like to to brag about how hot they are, and those 
they're never good. Uh, like the the best ones are the ones that can like balance it. Um, that can do like it's like you're gonna get that like blast of heat, but then it's going to chill out, or it's gonna be like at a medium pace the whole time. So I think we're I, I'm. I look for probably like, but I like a good like, whoo, like that moment of like, oh baby. So I think you'd probably want to like aim for something that's like, it's going to hit you with like a big blast of like a seven or eight when you first hit it, but then it fades very quickly. So you get that like punch of spice, but it's not gonna, you're not going to be like five minutes later. You're not still going like, okay, uh, is there bread anywhere? Can I, can I do something about this? I was with some friends in visiting, visiting Austin, Texas. And we went to, um, we swung into this shop that was like pretty much devoted entirely to hot sauce. And they had a couple on the counter for you to sample. And a friend and I went up there and, and you know, we tried, I was like, oh, it's pretty good. Oh yeah, yep, this one's pretty good. Oh yeah. And my friend was like, yeah, it's good. And these aren't too hot. And the guy behind the counter, like, like almost like contraband good. was sort of like, oh, you want hot, do you? And <laughs> reached under the counter and pulled out this like goblet like a skull-shaped goblet. And then inside that was a, a tiny, tiny bottle. So, so small. And, and he was like, he was like, grab a chip and I'm gonna, I'm gonna give you some. And unscrewed it and pulled out an eyedropper. And then the eyedropper dripped, it was like black tarry molasses, like this dark, thick, sticky, like string kind of came down. And so my friend tried it. And it was just like immediately like sweat beads on his forehead. And it was like, oh yeah, oh, that's pretty spicy. Uh, it's like, yeah, hey, I got any water? And the guy on the counter was like, yeah, 20 bucks. He's <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, you've done this before. So we like, we scurried out and we like, we grabbed some like ice cream from the first like ice cream that we had. But he probably spent like the next like, I don't know, hour or so, like trying to like calm down his mouth. And we looked it up later and it was a sauce called uh, the source and it was just pure capsaicin, which is the chemical in peppers that makes heat. So it was just 100% pure capsaicin for reference. It was like on the Scoville scale, which is the, the how, how spicy they measure things. It was spicier than pepper spray. <laughs> like it was basically like, it's like, Oh, this is a chemical weapon that you basically like the idea is for you to put like, one drop in like a whole pot of chili to get like general heat throughout. Uh, but he got like a full dose on one chip. He was okay. He was okay, yeah. yeah. Okay, good. 